0: Happy New Year. Good morning. Glad you could all make it. Is it still minus 40 outside? I forget. Um, This week we're starting a series on the Bible we're going to do for three weeks. The Bible is obviously a book that gives direction to everything we do at Church 21. This week I'm talking about how we can interpret the Bible and answering the question of, is the Bible complicated? And then in the next two weeks there'll be two other subjects on Scripture. But I want to begin with... uh, just giving an assertion. At, at Church 21, like Mike said, we believe the Bible is the word of God. It's a book that's produced by God himself. But if I'm honest with you, I'd have to say that I often don't feel that way about it. Actually, it's boring to me. Uh, but it doesn't make sense that I find it boring. So I, I have a little conflict with myself. I spend a lot of time and money going to see movies like the ones that show here, uh, science fiction, fantasy, action films. And yet I find the Bible boring. I I go to see these movies, and I I can't count the number of times I've probably watched uh, Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy, or the Bourne trilogy, or the Lord of the Rings. Um, And why do I do this, apart from the fact, apparently, that they are trilogies? Uh, I do it because I like to see people or beings do things that are far beyond my abilities uh, for the sake of good, uh, overcoming evil. I think that's why I keep watching them. But who is God? When we say the Bible is the word of God, what do we mean by that? We don't mean he's like Anthony Hopkins with an eye patch, uh, if anyone has seen the MCU movies you know what I'm talking about, but he's something far greater than that. So I'm just going to list a few uh, what we call properties of God or attributes of God. Firstly, God is independent, and when I say that I don't mean he's like politically independent. I mean, unlike us, where we depend on our environment, we depend on our bodies, uh, health, food, nourishment to stay alive, God needs nothing outside of himself to, to be, to exist. He is an independent being in the absolute sense. He's also infinite. Uh, everything we see and experience is limited, it's bounded, it has a definition, uh, limitation. God is none of those things. He is unlimited or infinite in, in being. And there's some specific ways we can understand what that means. He's infinite in time, so all of us began at some point Uh, probably less than 90 years ago, I'm going to assume. Uh, We'll all probably be gone in another 90 years. There were many generations before us. There have been centuries filled with civilizations that have been and have come and gone, and the world will go on who knows how long. But time passes, and things have a beginning and an end in our experience. God isn't like that at all. He exists at every moment as if it were all present to him at the same time. He doesn't get older in the sense of aging and decaying. He is eternal and timeless. He's also infinite in space. Uh, Everything we know in in the physical world is limited in some way. But God is what we call omnipresent. That's a big word. It just means he's present everywhere. Uh, Even in every space between people who are sitting in this theater, if you look over and see an empty spot, actually it's not empty because the creator of the universe is sitting there. Uh, And so he's present everywhere we look and everywhere we go. God is omniscient, which is another big word. That just means he knows everything. Uh, we all have limitations in knowledge. We are growing as a civilization. Uh, we, we increase our, our time studying, and we spend, and we grow the sciences. But God has known everything that's ever been true and everything that will ever be true. He knows everything that's true now. He knows everything that could be but never will be. Uh, he is unlimited in knowledge. He's also perfectly good and just. We, we look at things in the world, and we see that some of them lack things they should have, and we call that evil. We see people who make choices— for lesser goods when they should choose greater ones. For example, they, they choose to fill their bank accounts at the expense of someone else's well-being. And we know in our conscience they shouldn't do that because it's more important, it's a better good that they take care of other people. Well, God never makes a lesser choice. He has no envy or lust or malice or greed. He shows no favoritism and he has no apathy. He is perfect in every way. He's also the sovereign creator. So I talked about omnipresence a bit, but this, this one often blows my mind the most. God, uh, unlike any other being which has to use uh, techniques or body parts or strengths or instruments to make things happen, God just wills stuff and it happens. Okay, And actually, everything that happens, everything that is occurring right now, exists because he decides it will. And it continues to exist moment by moment, second by second, because he says, continue. That is what we mean when we say, God uh, and then we believe this being wrote a book for our salvation from evil and death by his infinite wisdom and power by what I just talked to you about. God works through the circumstances, the experiences, the feelings the thoughts of writers, and he produced a book of many books, the Bible. The Bible tells us about about itself uh, in many places, but the first one is in the first one we're going to talk about is in 2 Peter 1, 20-21. And I'll read it for you. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Because God did this, this way, the Bible is both a human book. He does carry along men who speak. But it has God's authority because he is the one who's ultimately behind it. When God speaks, his words cannot but have complete reliability. Uh, This is a perfectly all-knowing, all-good, all-powerful being speaks to us. He can't be mistaken. He can't lie. His promises can't fail to come to pass. Everything he says is true now is true, and everything he says was true or will be true will be. Everything he says is right is right. Everything he says is wrong is wrong. This is what the church has always believed. And we believe that God is perfect, that he wrote a book, or the scriptures, the writings, and he did this to to convey to us a message of salvation. And he did this so that anyone who, who studies it sincerely can know that message and be saved by it. Every week in our collective, everything we do here is based on this book. We say prayers that are based on scripture, we sing songs that are based on scripture, we read scripture to you and then we preach about scripture and then we call you to go share the message of scripture. Everything we do is about this book and what, what's recorded in it. So that's why we're talking about it for three weeks and we'll continue to preach it afterwards. But sometimes it's good to also turn around and, and ask uh, why we believe the Bible. We don't do that every week, but I'm going to spend a little bit of time giving you just a bit of a reason for why we should trust in it. Peter actually in the same letter that we're talking about, gives us a reason to believe it. He gives us eyewitness testimony. This is what Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter says, basically, we should believe the scriptures because they're not based on made-up stories. They're, They're based on what people saw happen, and especially what they saw God do. Peter saw Jesus transformed into this being of incredible light, like God himself. And then he heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He heard God speak from heaven and say, trust Jesus. So, we can do the same. Then we can turn and ask, what does Jesus tell us about the Bible? Because we want to talk about the Bible this morning. And he talks about the Bible everywhere in his life. We'll hear more about it in the next two weeks of sermons. But this week, I just want to show you one text from Matthew. He says, um, this is before he was about to be arrested and killed. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as a, against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Jesus here calls the Old Testament the scriptures of the prophets. And this is a common Jewish belief in his day. It wasn't unique to Jesus, but he does affirm it. He tells us this book, this Old Testament that we have, the half, first half of the Bible, Uh, that's written by prophets, and we've already seen what that meant. Uh, A prophet is someone who's carried along by the Spirit of God and speaks from God, uh, so that their words are also God's words. And then we know that Jesus appointed 12 apostles, and he appointed another man named Paul, who was also an apostle, and he promised that the Spirit would guide them into all truth. These same people wrote what we call the New Testament. And so we can put the New Testament in the same box as the Old Testament. It's also called Scripture. And that gets me to my, my first conclusion. We know from Peter's eyewitness that, that God confirmed Jesus' ministry. We know from Jesus' ministry that he confirmed to us we should trust Scripture. And so we can confidently trust the Bible. But uh, not everyone obviously agrees with that, at least not anymore. There's objections that people bring to, to belief in, in the idea that this kind of event could occur, that a, a blinding light could occur from, come from heaven, speak about a man on earth, and other people could witness that. We live in a world of incredible technology. Uh, We take it for granted that we have these computers in our pockets that can basically give us all knowledge that has ever been discovered uh, in a few seconds and certainly can get us down the street to this place we thought we knew where it was and it wasn't there. Uh, So it's amazing what science can do. But it also has convinced some people that really this idea of the supernatural is just a a mistake, a, a case of bad reasoning on the part of people who just didn't know better. But... The, the thing is that science itself, the scientific method, which is very useful and good, actually can't prove that God doesn't do these things. And I'll explain why. Uh, my friend Beth could probably give a better explanation because she knows the scientific method. But I'm going to try my best. Uh, the science essentially tries to figure out how objects behave intrinsically if you block out interference. And that's why when, they, when scientists conduct experiments, they try to stop things from interfering with what they're trying to observe. So I'll give you an example if they're they want to test a medication, uh, they'll try and make sure that the people aren't also taking other medications, or at least that they know about it. Because if they don't, then the, the effects of the medication might be masked by this other, other interfering uh, object, and they won't get the knowledge that they want. That's how science operates. But the thing about that is, science can't tell you that nothing will interfere. Uh, It certainly can't tell you that a being outside of the whole universe can't interfere in the process. So the method itself is very good, but it doesn't tell us that a miracle won't happen. Uh, The only way we can know whether a miracle happened is if we've experienced it or if someone else has experienced it and has told us about it and has given us testimony. And that brings us back to Peter again, because that's exactly what he's doing. He's giving us testimony that he witnessed a miracle. He witnessed God intervening in the processes of this world. Yet, um, another objection can pop up here, too, that um, many people haven't experienced miracles, so they feel like, nah, it probably hasn't happened. I haven't had one. I haven't heard any other of my friends having a miracle happen to them, so probably it's not the case. But that actually doesn't work on the level of common sense. My my wife and I we watched while well, we binge watched the the Crown over the holidays, and uh, it's it's pretty good show, I'll admit. Uh, but I've never met the Queen of England, and neither has Jenny. And I'm going to guess no one in this room has met Queen Elizabeth. Uh, that doesn't mean though that Queen Elizabeth doesn't exist because I've not experienced her. Uh, most of the people in the world haven't, but we know very well that she does exist. And the, my point is, we can't deduce from our limited experience that something is impossible. Uh, that's not in our experience. It just doesn't make sense either. So really, we don't have an argument from science or from, from experience, from the nature of those things, to say that this couldn't have happened. What Peter said was impossible. And then there's one last point I want to make. It's that Peter, uh, his testimony was actually backed by his own life. And by, what I mean by that is that we have good evidence uh, that Peter suffered persecution and torture and harassment and was actually crucified, uh, because he preached this gospel and he refused to stop preaching this gospel. Now, you might think uh, Christianity is false, but it's really hard to believe that Peter was not sincere if he went through all of that uh, to preach this message, that he could have just stopped preaching and stopped having all this trouble. So we have good reason to think Peter was telling the truth uh, or was sincere. Uh, we have no reason to think this kind of thing is impossible. And we have his testimony that says it happened. So we have a, a piece of evidence for for why we should believe in Scripture. Now, this is just a tiny bit of evidence. Uh, This is not even maybe the strongest piece of evidence I could give you for why we should believe in the Bible. There's more books with more authors who have more experience. And then even after the Bible, there's a testimony of Christians throughout history to having experienced God do things in their lives. This is just like a drop in the bucket. But I wanted to give you something. But I also want to tell you, if you live long enough in the Christian life, you'll experience some kind of challenge or, or or. Something to make you doubt your faith. It will come eventually, in some form or another. And uh, you can not avoid it. But what you can do is rely on God and trust him. And I know this from experience. I've, uh, I'm kind of nerdy, so I've read a lot of books about the Bible. And, and reading a lot of books about the Bible eventually generated a lot of questions. And I didn't always have them immediately, like the answers that I wanted. Sometimes I went years without getting them. But God always gave me enough to hold on. And then later he gave me even better things. And I want you to, to trust that, that he will, he will hold, hold your faith uh, and you can hold on to him. You don't have to lie to yourself or be dishonest about your doubts. Uh, you can admit them and just keep pushing for an answer. Keep asking God and his goodness will, will satisfy your needs. Uh, I believe that. But uh, I want to focus the rest of my time on another issue. This one, the one that the assignment I was given this week was, uh, how do we interpret the Bible? Is the Bible a complicated book? And I want to answer the question by uh, basically giving a weasel answer, which is that it's easy and it's difficult. Um, So I'll explain what I mean by that. In our passage this morning, Peter talks about this issue, about how complicated the Bible is. And, And Mike read it, I'll read it again to you. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Peter says right there in black and white, there are some things hard to understand in scripture, but that also means there are some things that are not hard to understand uh, because it's only some things. In a couple of weeks, uh, Dwight will preach on the message of scripture, the basic idea of what the Bible is about. But I'm going to give a kind of spoiler, but it's not a spoiler because he's not preaching on this text. But still, uh, John 20, verses 30 to 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, the Gospel of John. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The main point of the Bible is to get us to trust in Jesus, to believe in him, and to have eternal life by him, through him. In other words, there are some things in Scripture that are hard to understand, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but not everything is. And the clearest thing is the thing that's repeated the most often. It's what we need to do, or better, who we need to trust to be saved. And it's God. It's God in Jesus Christ. That's the easy part of Scripture to get, and I'll come back to that again later. But uh, there are some things that are hard to understand, and this raises the question of how do we interpret the Bible at all? And the answer is we need principles. There's two kinds of principles I'm going to talk about. One are principles we use when we're reading, and one are principles we have in our character. There's a good analogy Jenny gave me uh, for, for this one. Remember back when you were in school, or maybe some of you were still in school, there were, uh, say, in math class, you had rules of math or ideas or, or equations or theorems that you would study. But there's also these other list of rules called the class rules. Uh, so there, there's two kinds. One is uh, how to do things in a math problem, and one is what to do in class. Like, uh, for example, don't talk to your neighbor, don't pass notes, don't throw paper airplanes, don't shoot spitballs, don't uh, ignore the teacher, don't do those kind of things. Class rules, and then math rules are like, here's the Pythagorean theorem, and here's uh, how to solve these kinds of equations, etc. Now, this same kind of two, two types of rules applies to Scripture, and I'm going to talk a bit about both of them. The first one are the principles of reading. And here they are, uh, in black and white. Uh, the, first one, the first thing to say about them is that these principles, are, they sound complicated, but actually we use them every day when we're talking to each other. You're actually using them right now as you listen to me, and I'll explain what I mean. But these are the principles we use when we, apply to, we read Scripture, too, because it's just a communication, the same kind of thing. The first rule is, number one, pay careful attention. So this is maybe obvious, but maybe it's not obvious. You have to really seriously pay attention to what someone's saying to you if you want to hope to understand them. If we don't, we may only hear half the message. So an example of this in my life recently, uh, someone came over to our house, a friend of ours, and they left. I heard them say they were leaving something called a SCOBY. I really don't know what that is. Uh, My wife does, though. Apparently, you use it to make kombucha. Anyway, I wasn't listening, and later after dinner, my job was to clean the dishes, so I did the dishes, And I threw out something that looked like a rotten piece of ham, because why would you want that around? Uh, And then I found out later, oh, that's the SCOBY. So that was gone, and we still don't have kombucha, but uh, maybe one day it'll come back. I just want to use that as an illustration, though. Paying attention is a good thing to do. Uh, This also means reading the Bible regularly with care, because you might have missed something the last time you read it, so read it again. you know. And listen to other people talk about the Bible, because they might see something you didn't. So... One, one way to, to study the Bible carefully is to listen to people like me talk to you on Sunday morning or to read books by others who have read scripture or to meet in change groups or Bible studies and talk to each other about what you see because other people can help you see things you miss. We're never perfect at paying attention, but we should try. Uh, the second principle is to read the text in context. We know, again, from experience, it's not fair. Uh, if someone says, you took me out of context, like they're implying you did something wrong, that you, in fact, lied about what they said, Uh, because you you removed part of the text that makes their words make sense, uh, in the proper sense. And we should give the same treatment to the Bible. We should be fair to it and interpret it in context. Now, the Bible has a bunch of contexts we have to keep in mind. The first one is what I'll just call literary. And what I mean by that is the Bible is actually made up of 66 books written by 40 or so authors. And they they write passages or verses, like we read, in the context of their whole book. Uh, so to be fair to them, we have to look at what a passage means in the context of the whole book, how they structure it, what their purpose was, what how they use words and terms, because sometimes people have catchphrases, you know, that from experience too. It means a certain thing, okay? So being careful about that is good. The second con- kind of context is linguistic. Again, when we communicate with each other nowadays, we assume uh, people know what we mean. If I had to stop in the sermon and explain the meaning of every word... Uh, we wouldn't get past like the introduction. So, obviously, we have to assume that people know what words mean. It's a bit more complicated with the Bible because it was actually written in two dead languages, ancient Hebrew and Koine Greek. Now, there, are, there is modern Hebrew and modern Greek, but they're not exactly the same. And anyway, most of us here probably don't speak those languages. So, there's a, there's a distance there uh, which can trip us up because we may not know the language as well as the people who spoke it. In fact, we certainly don't. But... Uh, The good news is, people have learned the languages pretty well, and they've written translations, and they've written commentaries, and those are available to you. So if, like me, or most people, you won't probably learn the languages, you have those tools that can help you bridge that gap. But just be aware that there are complexities there that can show up and make things hard at times. The last context is historical. So in addition to assuming a common language, when we talk to each other, we often assume common knowledge. So uh, the example I could think of here was we have a lot of funny uh, terms we use when we talk about technology. For example, you probably all understand what I mean when I say uh, I dropped the file in my drive in the cloud. But imagine if you lived 200 years ago and you're trying to understand how did someone drop a file in a drive in a cloud from the ground? Uh, So, I mean... Uh, we understand what that means because we have this common knowledge. But the Bible, again, was written at least 2,000 years ago and further back. So those people, those authors and those audiences had common knowledge that we may not always have. And that can also trip us up. Uh, That can make complicated things that were were not as complicated when it was written. But, again, it's not all bad news. Uh, People can study the historical context because there are other documents about what happened. And uh, scholars have done this and they've written books that you can read and you can bridge that gap. And also, most importantly, a lot of the context of a biblical passage is in the rest of the Bible. So if you read the whole thing, you're going to get a lot of context for each of those texts. Uh, And this is an especially important thing to remember uh, for us because there's actually a basic storyline to the Bible that the whole Bible relates to, and it begins in the first book of the Bible, which is the background for all the others. Genesis tells us this story, about a good God, the one we talked about making a perfect world uh, for us to enjoy. And then it tells us how he, the human race turned away from God. They rebelled against him, and uh, they became enemies with him. And then it tells us what God promised to do to to change this, to fix this problem. It says he'd send the seed of a woman, a, a son, a man would come one day and defeat the serpent, the, the, the being that lied to the human race and, and led them to rebel against God and that he would restore us from all these problems. So because we turn from God, we're alienated from him, we are guilty before him, we suffer and we die, uh, and we're at war with each other. But the son, the seed of this woman, will come and resolve all of these problems. That's God's promise. And then it calls us, this book, Genesis, to, to, to a basic reply or response to what God has done for us. And that simple response is to trust God, like we didn't trust God in the first place. That's the basic message of Genesis, and that's actually the message that the whole Bible is relating back to. So, whenever you're reading a text in Scripture, you can always say this somehow relates to this basic problem and this basic solution, uh, and think about that, and you will, you will get clarity. And that's that's the the beautiful thing is that if you do you follow what I'm saying, you read through these principles, you read the Bible in context, especially the context of this simple message. Uh, you'll get the basic truths of Christianity in Scripture for yourself. You will see that Jesus Himself is God come to solve our our great problem. You will see the story that I just told you uh, in that in this book, and the Church has seen it there for two thousand years, and it summarized them in things called creeds or confessions, and they it's always seen this message in there. So this is the easy thing that you can find, and you can use this easy thing to find to find light for the more complicated things. But there's another set of rules, back to the classroom rules. And that's the, these are the ones that Peter is actually focusing on in our passage for this morning. He doesn't really focus on the, the reading principles, he focuses on character. And why is that? Peter tells us why. He says, uh, again, as he does in all his letters, this is Paul, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Peter says the problem in this case is with the principles of character. He says the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction hard things in Paul's letters and also in the other scriptures. And then he warns his readers to take care about something. He warns them to be careful. Uh, And what does he tell them to be careful of? That they're not carried away with the error of lawless men. Because if they do, he says, they will become ignorant. And in ignorance and instability, they will twist the scriptures. And by twisting the scriptures, they will destroy themselves. So what is this danger? What is Peter talking about? I think there are two possible dangers. One of them is that, in fact, it's possible to go through your whole life professing to be a Christian and never actually really trust Jesus with your heart, your soul, your life. This type of person uh, won't really believe the gospel, and they'll eventually be carried away with error of other people who who are spreading error. And this will lead to a moral and spiritual collapse in their life, which will lead to them twisting the scriptures and destroying themselves for eternity. It's a a serious thing that that Peter is really warning us about here. It's the fate of our souls that we're talking about. So I I plead with you, please take this seriously. Uh, There's nothing more important than where you're going to spend eternity. Nothing. Uh, So please take care. The other danger is for, even for, for people who really do trust in Jesus, they can get way off path sometimes, and they can fall into error, which leads them to twist the scriptures and causes themselves great pain until they are brought back by the Lord. So... Even if you are saved, you can still suffer needlessly uh, because you don't take care about this. So please take care. <laughs> um, but still, you might be wondering, uh, you haven't answered the question, what does character have to do with interpretation? Someone might say, if I can read, why can't I just understand the Bible? It's just, it's just words. The truth is that uh, our character can actually affect our vision, and I don't mean our literal vision, I mean our vision with our minds. Uh, to put it bluntly, sinning makes us dumber, and virtue makes us wiser. It's like the class rules I mentioned before. If you're distracted, if you're shooting spitballs or throwing paper airplanes or passing notes or talking over the teacher, and all of your classmates are doing this, none of you are going to listen to the teacher. You won't get the lessons. You'll fall behind, and you won't be able to understand what's going on. So, Your failure to obey the classroom rules will affect your ability to solve the math problems. Um, This principle is also in Scripture. The idea that I'm talking about is that uh, we turn from God, we're alienated from God, and this leads to ignorance and darkness in our own mind. And an illustration that popped into my head when I was thinking of this, I watched uh, Charlie Brown's Christmas over the the winter holidays, and if you've ever seen those cartoons, you'll know whenever the adults talk, They sound like, "Mm, mm, 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 mm." they have no meaning or intelligibility. Uh, And that's basically what I think it's like. The the more hardened you become, the darker your mind gets, the less you can understand what God's saying to you, and he starts to sound like the Charlie Brown teacher. Uh, And so, I mean, that's the the danger, right? We don't want to get into that place where that's what God's voice sounds to us like. But it also works in the other direction. Hebrews 5 says this, So the author of Hebrews tells us that the hard things in the oracles of God in Scripture, those hard things are for the mature. And he tells us what the mature are. The mature are people who have constantly practiced in their daily lives, thinking about difficult situations and figuring out what the right thing to do is. And this practice has sharpened their minds so that they can pursue a truth that is difficult to find, and it's enabled them to think very carefully. And this this training, this uh ingrained uh, ability or insight carries over when they read scripture so they can understand hard things in there too. So this is, if we go back to the classroom, an example of this is the student who listens to the teacher can understand how to start doing their homework. And when they do their homework, they see lots of different problems that they don't understand at first. But as they work on it, they understand one and then they see, oh, this is similar, and they understand that one. And then they keep doing it until it's easy. And then they can take that insight they've gained and start on a harder problem, another, the next lesson, right? That's how it works. Uh, and the same thing works in life and in, in reading scripture. It's hard for me to illustrate to you an example of that happening be, with scripture because it's going to be varying by individual, what person, a person finds difficult and how God brings them to understand that through their life experiences. But uh, that's the promise of this text. So again, to sum up, sinning makes us dumber and virtue makes us wiser. Remember that when you go home. Uh, Remember some other things too, but that's a good one to keep. Um, Peter's saying we need wisdom to understand scripture, especially the hard parts of it. And that explains Peter's counsel to the people he's warning. Peter says, instead of being carried away with lawless error, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the alternative to being carried away being led to instability leading to twisting the scriptures, leading to self-destruction. The alternative is to grow in the knowledge of Jesus. But how do we do that? How do we get this character that Peter is calling us to, to go after? And the, the answer comes in the first chapter of this same letter we've been reading, 2 Peter. The truth is, because the Bible is the word of God and because we're sinners, uh, we are motivated to make it want to say things it doesn't. And so that's why we need to grow into Jesus likeness to really understand what it's saying. And I want to walk slowly through this the first part of second uh, Peter. So Peter says, "For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love." We're actually missing some verses. I wasn't supposed to read that yet. So listen carefully as I read uh, this part of the text. Um, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, those promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So just to sum up this verse, God's power has provided us a way out of corruption. And he's done this in a specific way. He's done it through knowledge of Jesus. And Jesus has given us very great promises. Now what do we do with promises? What, they, what are they for? Well, they're for us to trust in. So we trust in these promises. And Peter says when we do this, we escape the corruption that's in the world. Our sins are forgiven, and the power of evil desire is sapped. Uh, I, I was trying to think of a good illustration for this, but the one that comes easiest to me is, you know when you wake up in the morning well, maybe it's for people who aren't morning persons. People who wake up in the morning, they don't want to get out of bed, and then they have the thought or even the smell of coffee and breakfast. And that's like, uh, okay, I'll get out of bed now for that. Uh, that is one desire overpowering another one. Thanks, Augie, I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> and So this is, a, this is a small illustration of what it's like for one desire to break another one. And that's what happens uh, when you put your trust in Jesus' promises because you believe what he's saying about all these awesome things that he is and that he does for us. And you recognize that's way better than whatever this evil thing is that I wanted before. And that starts to look like the gross thing that it is. And then you say, forget about it. I'm going over here. Uh, That's how it begins. That's how life begins in, in the spirit. But there's also growth. That's not where we stop. And that brings me back to the passage I've already read to you. So I'll read it to you again. For this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and your virtue with knowledge and your knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. I think this is at the heart of how we get those classroom rules down and we get them inside us. We do this. Uh, Peter says we work as hard as we can. We make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue, with all these other character traits. But I don't want you to misunderstand when I'm saying this. Uh, that I'm not talking about earning forgiveness or acceptance or the love of God. We don't earn those things. Those are the things that come first when we trust him. It's out of those things, out of that acceptance and that love that God has for us, that we, our hearts bursting with joy and love want to do these things. We want to grow in this way. We want to add virtue to our faith and knowledge to our virtue and all those other things. So, with that misunderstanding uh, put to the side, we can, say, we can look at what these things are more specifically. And I think the well, not the best way, but a good way to, to understand these virtues is to look at their opposites. It's sometimes helpful to know the light by the darkness. In Second Peter, he spends a lot of time talking about false teachers, and we're not going to look at those texts directly. But if you actually take time to read the letter, you'll see that every one of these virtues has a corresponding vice in the false teachers. So, Christians... Um, Will say, have virtue, but the false teachers, they never stop sinning. That's one thing that's true about them. You have knowledge over here, on the other hand, they have high sounding but empty words. Self control over here, they are consumed with desire for money and sex. Over here, there's steadfastness or patience. Over there, they once turned from sin, but now they've turned back to it. Over here, there's godliness which is reverence and respect towards God. And over here, they're ungodly, brazen, and insolent. And then over here, they have affection and love for one another, and these teachers want to exploit people to get money and sex out of them. That's In that letter, that's what Peter says. But... On the other hand, as we've just seen, Peter says that Christians, they're not perfect because they have sin in their life still, but they are growing in these virtues. So when I list them and explain them to you, I don't want you to think, oh, I'm not perfect at this, so I'm not one of these people. That's not what Peter's saying. He's saying we grow in these things. So virtue is essentially a word for moral excellence. Christians are people who strive to obey God in everything they do. They have knowledge. They're building their minds up with truth. Uh, They have self-control. They can properly direct desires that are good to the ends that God wanted them to go to. They're steadfast. They keep trusting Jesus. They keep treasuring him, even when it's difficult. They don't turn back from him. They're godly, which means they're humble before God. They submit to him, and they submit to the people God has given to lead others, like parents and governments and teachers and uh, even church leaders. And lastly, they have brotherly affection and love. So they live and act so that other people can experience the joy of knowing God and so that they can have, they live for the sake of others having well-being and not just themselves, materially and spiritually. That's what love looks like in action. These are the traits that he says every Christian puts every effort into growing into. And then he says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to conform your calling and election. Con- confirm it. But if you, For if you practice these things, you will never fall. The apostle says if we do these things, it will keep us from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus. And then if we have the knowledge of Jesus, we will never fall. If we grow in these things, we will never fall. Which basically means we won't, Uh, Be ignorant, and we won't be unstable. And those are the two things that led to people twisting the scriptures, which led to them destroying themselves. And this is an amazing promise, I mean, especially for me in my life right now. It's been very encouraging to read, you can grow. Uh, Sometimes I feel like I'm stuck in a place, I'm in a plateau, and I have an amount of joy, but it's disappointing sometimes, or I feel confused about things. And this text basically says there's more. Like, you can keep going. You can keep becoming more like Jesus uh, through his power. And you can deepen your joy and your knowledge of him. And that will certainly kill any desire you have for sin if you keep doing these things. And it will enable you to understand his word more, which will give you more joy. So this is a, a great promise for us. But it's also not something we can do in our own power. So Paul tells us elsewhere, Paul, not Peter, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What this means is that when you put in the effort to do these things, when you make every effort, it's actually God working in you. It's a miracle you're watching. You're watching that amazing creator of the universe do something inside your heart and your body even. Uh, When you make an effort and you do something for God's sake or for good, that's God working in you. But there's also an an engine to our efforts on on our subjective side. Okay, We do it because we trust in God. Our faith is rooted in the word of God and especially in this message and this good news that God has done everything for us that we need to be restored to him, to have everlasting life. When we we deepen that idea, that promise in our minds, the more deeply we grasp them as true and as a a source of joy for us and the more we're compelled to seek out Jesus' likeness. So it's through faith that we grow in our desire to be like Jesus, and then we grow into his likeness. Uh, The faith makes us want to put in every effort. And so if we want to grow in understanding, we need to do these basic things. We need to remember the gospel, keep it in our minds, keep it fresh, keep studying the basic, simple part of scripture, and pray and beg God that he would give us more and more joy and understanding in and of this message. And then we want to put every effort and make plans even and then execute them to grow in these character traits into Jesus' likeness. And then we want to read in context the scriptures. We want to pay attention, like we said, and we want to keep the context in mind as we read it. And that's how we grow. And so the answer to our question of how do we interpret the Bible when it's complicated is this. The answer is that God himself, the author of scripture, will help you understand the word as you put your trust in him and trying to, to grow into Jesus' likeness through his power. He will train us through this. He will mature us and build us because he is our loving father and he wants us to increase in our knowledge and joy of him. Because it's through our knowledge of him and the joy we get from knowing him that God is most glorified. And that is his ultimate purpose for us. So I, I want to I pray for that right now so that we can all join in that together and the band can come down when, they, when they're ready. So please join me in prayer. Thank you, God, uh, for the scriptures, for your word. It's amazing to us that a being like you, uh, an unlimited, infinite, almighty, all good being would write a book for us, but you did it so that we could be saved by you, so we could have joy in you. We pray that you would help us to turn from the sin that prevents us from growing into Jesus' likeness and prevents us from understanding what you said to us. We thank you that you will do that, that what you've begun in us, you will complete. We pray you'd help us to share this message, this book, what it says to us and to everybody with the city and all the people that we know. And we pray that you would give them uh, open hearts to hear what we have to say uh, so that we, they would also be able to join in our joy. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.